Nikita Shevchenko bought a one-way ticket out of Russia on February 24th, the day the war began. Like 6 a.m. or so, um, I got up, I opened the phone, and the first messages that I saw were like booms and bombings and uh, dead bodies. Then he decides. I was like, okay, I'm going to Portugal. He buys his ticket, gets to the airport. I arrived to the airport, you know, like uh, happy that, you know, I'm leaving, that I will not stay here, etc. But the flight to Portugal had a stop in Poland, and a border guard tells him he can't go through. I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> Why? And she's, she's like, um, Poland doesn't accept uh, Russian people anymore. Time for plan B. And I'm like, okay, I just need to leave somewhere else, whatever the country it is. I started to call like many people, my assistant, uh, my friends. He books a flight to Greece. From Greece, I traveled to another like bordering city. From uh, that city, I traveled to Portugal in the end. And within two days, I was in Portugal, like, you know. Um, and then, uh, eventually, he appears in San Francisco, one of the tens of thousands of IT workers who have left Russia. A Russian tech trade association said last month that as many as 70,000 tech workers have fled the country, and they expect that number to more than double by summer. That would mean a total of 10% of Russia's tech workforce will have just vanished. This is a big deal because Russia produces some of the world's most talented software engineers and web developers. They created things like Telegram and Yandex, which is Russia's answer to Google. And now these people are leaving. I think, you know, just like Russia will never be the same for at least maybe the next a couple of tens of years, a couple of decades. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, and this is Click Here, a podcast about all things cyber and intelligence. Today, we talk to three members of the great Russian migration, a nimble entrepreneur, a corporate leader with her family, and a high school computer whiz who can't wait to leave. And they're finding the world outside of Russia to be downright hostile, having to field comments like this. Some of our, you know, like, um, potential investors that, oh, you're from Russia, go fuck yourself. Go to, go to hell, a burning hell. Stay with us. If you're looking for a daily guide to cybersecurity news and policy, sign up for the Cyber Daily from Recorded Future News. It serves up the day's most interesting and important cyber stories from our sister publication, The Record, and then aggregates all of the big cyber stories you might have missed from news outlets around the world. Just go to therecord.media and click on Cyber Daily to get all you need to know about the world of cybersecurity right in your inbox. Hello, I'm Adam Fleming from the Global Story podcast from the BBC World Service. We are looking at Lena Khan, the face of the US government's battle to regulate big tech. She's already redefined the way we talk about monopolies. Now she's taking on the likes of Amazon and Meta. But who is she and will she win? The Global Story brings you fresh takes and smart perspectives from BBC journalists around the world. Find us wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Hey there. Hey there, it's Dina. Uh, yeah, just a second. Just give it to me, that's okay? Yeah, no problem. Nikita Shevchenko is living in a small apartment in San Francisco's trendy Mission District. It's surrounded by coffee shops and taquerias. I met up with him there a couple of weeks ago. Super nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Uh, welcome to America. dreams. <laughs> <laughs> Land of dreams, he says. 
Shevchenko is just 22. He's single, and he told me he learned his English by endlessly pitching customers and investors. Apparently, he's pretty good at it. Now he's a successful tech entrepreneur. Wow, this is a nice place. His new San Francisco pad is decorated with shiny wood floors and smells like new furniture. There are bottles of wine on the kitchen counter and a new microwave, still in the box, sitting on the floor. How long have you been here? Uh, It looks like he's going to stay a while. As soon as the war happened, you know, just all of my plans changed like completely within basically 30 minutes. (laughs) So do you know the term brain drain? Um, Yes, when clever people leave the country, right? Yeah, I know that. Um, Do you consider yourself part of a, a Russian brain drain? Do you have friends who left too? Yeah, like I know many clever people that left. Um, and I think actually, like to be honest, um, any all clever people left uh, the country. So like basically no, no clever people stayed. Before the war, Shevchenko had founded a small company called We Love No Code. It helps businesses build websites with blocks of code, sort of like Lego, which makes it a lot cheaper than hiring a developer or a coder to build a website from scratch. The beauty of it, Shevchenko says, is he just needs to hire people who know how to put the blocks together. We don't like to code um, and we help companies to build products without code, basically, as simple as that. Hence the name, We Love No Code. Shevchenko was in the process of going back for more seed capital when the war happened. And that's when the potential investor told him to go to hell because he was Russian. Which is a little weird because Shevchenko himself has lived and worked in Ukraine. And he's spending a lot of his time helping his 50 employees and their families in the Ukraine and Russia relocate. I understand like the whole pain and stuff. So it's like very, very, very sad for me. Uh, we spend uh, like 10% of, on, of all of our revenue to Ukrainians, like humanitarian aid, etc. Uh, like and while he wouldn't go so far as to say he saw the invasion coming, he does allow that he was afraid it would happen. So he moved some of his employees out of Ukraine months ago. So we relocated them, we paid for their tickets, you know, to different countries like in Europe so that they will just leave and so that they can work and their families will be safe. We offered it to all. Back then we had 10 or so or something like that. Uh, almost all of them left. Uh, These days, as the war rages on, it's not only his Ukrainian staff who wants to leave. His Russian employees are asking to relocate too. Although the Russian government is trying to keep tech workers from leaving by offering lower tax rates and preferable mortgages, and even the promise that they will not have to serve in the army, Shevchenko says 80% of his Russian workforce wants to go elsewhere. Uh, like we try to relocate everyone uh, possible. It's just like, you know, very hard uh, with our, just the amount of cash that we have. It's just unfortunately not possible, but we're just trying our best. Just encouraging and enabling this exodus of talent from Ukraine and Russia could have landed Shevchenko in jail if he was still in Moscow. Uh, if I will count like the, the number of laws that I um, broke, <laughs> I guess, uh, well, to be honest, like it will be the minimum 20 years, but I'm guessing something like maybe 60 or so. Um, starting with, you know, helping Ukrainians, um, ending with, uh, you know, like prop- propaganding uh, anti-Russian vision, etc., The so-called anti-Russian vision is calling the invasion of Ukraine what it is, a war. Moscow's preferred language is special operation. He's also suggesting that Russia isn't winning. That's a crime, too. All this feels very Soviet Union. And needless to say, he has no plans to return. 
When we come back, we talk to a Russian expert in educational technology and her concerns about the future. Most of Russians who flee, they can't even think about asking for help, and no one wants to help us. This is Click Here. We'll be right back. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Natalia Chabatar's daughter turned nine on March 1st. That's from a video taken that day. Her daughter is wearing a princess dress from Frozen and has that embarrassed but happy look that kids get when adults are singing to them. Her grandparents are in the background. There was supposed to be a big birthday party, but Chabatar canceled it after the invasion and had a small family affair instead. She and her family left Russia for Tbilisi, Georgia, the very next day. I left my car. Uh, we left our house. It just stays there. Um, my husband still has business there, and he doesn't know what to do with his business. His e-commerce company has a lot of international clients, and because of the sanctions, business is way down. Unlike Nikita Shevchenko, Chobatar is very well known in Russia, famous even, in a techie kind of way. I'm most famous for, uh, in Russia, for being a chief strategy officer in Yandex Education. Yandex is kind of Russian Google, uh, the main competitor, uh, and I was in charge in uh, big educational projects. Yandex is one of Russia's top tech companies. In addition to Russian language search, it has dozens and dozens of Google-like products, including a virtual assistant named Alice. Hi, I'm Alice, Russia's most popular intelligent voice assistant. Let's talk. And a news portal, which recently seems to only link to a lot of state news sites. Natalia Chobatar was in charge of Yandex's education products, so she was big. She ran a popular tech conference called EdCrunch and was behind a series of online classes, sort of like a Russian Khan Academy. She helped distribute digital textbooks into Russian schools. And, uh, my textbooks are now used by 20,000 schools in Russia. That's half of all schools in Russia. Which is why it is particularly striking that Chobotar no longer lives there. By her reckoning, Russia's big tech exodus actually started some time ago, before the war, when Putin began to crack down on dissent. That's when tech people who had jobs that were portable and could speak English just took off. She said the people who don't have those skills will stay in Russia and work. Do you know the English expression, cream of the crop? I know, yeah. We have a cream of cream, cream of cream. <laughs> so do you think a lot of the cream of cream or cream of the crop have left? Yes, I, I think so. Uh, the bigger problem that I'm heard of, uh, like everyone is talking, is about with with hard technology, with hardware, not not with people and software. The sanctions are preventing the export of technology to Russia. I'm not in, into hard technologies. I'm from from soft part, uh, but uh, this these problems are quite serious. 
this can pause uh, lots of initiatives and lots of businesses. The thinking is that as the war grinds on, Russia may have to beef up its homegrown computer chip and integrated circuits industry just to keep its war machine humming. It's unclear, though, how local production could be enough. Chobatar's daughter, even though she's in Tbilisi, is still attending her old school. She's taking classes online. Half of her class has moved to different countries. Half of the teachers moved to different countries. And now it's kind of mix, blended classroom. Uh, and the school doesn't know whether it will open uh, this in, in the same condition in September. Maybe some people will return because they can't uh, find their way in, diff- in other country. Uh, maybe some will not. Chobatar is looking for a local school in Tbilisi to send her daughter to in September. People who have fled Russia aren't very welcome anywhere right now. There's a Democratic congressman from California who has even suggested we kick every Russian student out of the United States. Meta has allowed Facebook and Instagram users to post hate speech against Russia. And while many of the Russians who have left, like Shevchenko and Chobotar, are against the war, they're being discriminated against anyway. It's kind of strange thing that because no one is bombing Russia, uh, nothing is happening, and uh, Ukrainians uh, have this kind of help in different countries, and it's totally understood. And uh, most of Russians who flee can't even think about asking for help, and no one wants to help us. Chobotar says that while her family is luckier than most, all this is very hard. We have some savings. We know how to find work. Uh, it's hard. Uh, it's hard to change country in one day, but still we're in better situation than Ukrainians. So we have different kind of groups that different Russian people help each other, but it's not like every road is open for you. It's not. When Natalia Chobotar was a little girl, she used to watch the military parades on television on Victory Day, May 9th. May 9th is a special day in Russia. It's seen as the day the world triumphed over Nazism. It's the day Germany surrendered, ending World War II in Europe. And every year, there's an over-the-top, government-orchestrated show of military might. Tanks and missiles rumble through Red Square. Leaders make speeches. Slava And Chobotar used to attend local receptions held for veterans of the war. Uh, each family has veterans. Like, you don't have to, to look for, for some, because usually each family has, has some. She remembers the dinners as solemn occasions. It was kind of evening with some food uh, at a special, like, small event place. She worries what this year's May 9th celebrations will set in motion. They need to show um, at least some uh, victory. I wonder how they will show it. Putin used his speech this year to tell the Russian people that invading Ukraine was the right thing to do, and they should stay the course. It was a decision, a unique and unique decision. 
Funny thing, though, program descriptions on several Russian television networks changed for part of the day. According to the BBC, in every time slot of the online schedules for one of the state-run channels, for example, the names of the programs have been changed. Instead, the guides read, TV and authorities are lying. No to war. Hackers are suspected of being behind the switch. Putin added a second military parade to coincide with the one in Moscow this year. It took place in the captured Ukrainian city of Mariupol. And it seemed sad. Music blared out of loudspeakers. Single army trucks drove down the boulevards. Moscow had dispatched people to the city to change road signs into Russian language and to clean unexploded bombs from the streets. They were also asked to remove the dead bodies. In the end, it didn't look like much of a celebration. It looked like a funeral. The Mariupol parade was also broadcast on state television to millions of Russians, many of whom quietly see the pummeling of Mariupol not as a victory, but as a tragedy. Like this 18-year-old we met. We'll call him Kirill. Last month, the Russian teenager won a national computing competition. And uh, I'm finishing school now. I, I really like computers and IT. I'm really good at it. Two weeks ago, I won Olympiad of Russian University. Now I can enter the university without any exams. I, I don't need to pay for my education. When his mother woke him up for school on February 24th, she told him the war had started. I just can't uh, describe to you emotions uh, as, as it was. I went to sh shower and uh, I, I just standing still and uh, all my body trembles. It's the worst morning in my life. Things went downhill for his family from there. They just started construction on a new house, and then his father was laid off. He worked for a foreign company that left Russia in response to the sanctions. His mother has a PhD in economics and works for a local company. Her salary has been cut in half. His winning of the Collegiate Olympiad was one of the only bright spots in an otherwise dismal spring. All, all my classmates are, are not support the war, except three people. But he says everyone is being careful. Because being against Putin's actions can get you in trouble. In Russia, to call a thing that is happening in the Ukraine, call it war, it's already a crime. And uh, in Russia, uh, pigeons is a sign of peace. And uh, now even pigeons, you're not allowed to paint pigeons. Wow. Uh, for example, in the walls. If you paint the pigeon in the wall, uh, in half an hour, it will be painted over. Do you feel strongly about wanting to leave Russia? Well, yeah, yeah, I, I, I really want to leave. My dream is uh, Latvia because uh, there are lots of, uh, lots of IT specialists. L Latvia is my dream. <laughs> so... If, if you went to Latvia and you were an IT specialist there, do you think you would come back to Russia or would you leave forever? It, it depends. It depends on the Russian government. Are you aware that lots of tech people are leaving? In Russia, everyone says uh, that all tech 
tech specialists are leaving. Three people, all in different circumstances, all desperate to leave Putin's Russia. U.S. officials have been watching this exodus, too. That's a generational impact when you talk about the talent walking out the door. That's Micah Oyang. She's the U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Cyber Policy. She's responsible for establishing DOD's cyberspace strategy. And she sees Russia's brain drain as having long-term strategic implications. And I think that's really hard because if you are involved in the technology industry and you are interested in developing better products to improve the lives of people around the world, um, I think Russia has made itself a very difficult place to work and live. And she agrees with Chobotar, the educational leader who said this lack of computer parts is a longer term problem than the exodus of tech workers the export controls and other things that limit their access to Western technology will be really difficult for Russia to reconstitute its military and to maintain its technological edge, relying entirely on indigenous technology rather than having the world available to you um, is a real challenge for Russia. History tells us that there's no better way to jumpstart an industry than being cut off. And now Russia will have to do just that, despite the great migration of tech workers. This is Click Here. And now, a check-in on the world of ransomware. A few weeks ago, I sat down with Rob Silvers from the Department of Homeland Security. It was a fireside chat, and it opened the Hewlett Foundation's Verify Conference in Sausalito, California. So thanks very much for being with us. Wonderful to be here. He's the Undersecretary of Homeland Security for Strategy, Policy, and Plans. And I asked him to explain what that means. The job is to look at hard problems and say, this is what we're going to do, and this is how we're going to do it. And cybersecurity is, is the easiest. Is, is, <laughs> yeah, the one we've really <laughs> cracked, right? When I was a terrorism correspondent at NPR, we always talked about how terrorism ends. So I asked a version of that. So um, here's a simple question. How does ransomware end? So I asked a really smart technologist isn't there some kind of technology solution here that would prohibit an unauthorized encryption of data on a system? And he said, it's not so simple. So what it means is that we don't think there's a silver bullet. And instead, we think we are going to whittle this problem down through a number of approaches. Rob Silver says it begins with cutting off the money. We have been sanctioning cryptocurrency exchanges operating overseas which are known to funnel illicit proceeds from ransomware. In fact, the Treasury Department sanctioned the cryptocurrency mixer Blender.io last week. We've also sort of unprecedented figured out, in some cases, how to seize cryptocurrency wallets of the ransomware actors. A big part of all this is a crypto policy called Know Your Customer. Just as a bank asks for ID before you open an account, many crypto exchanges are supposed to do the same. But this isn't a requirement for some overseas companies, which allows people to move tons of money around anonymously and leaves an opening for criminals. Ransomware could never work in its current form if you had to write a check 
to the ransomware artists because somewhere along the line they would have to cash that check and there's a whole traceability issue and they could be tracked down easily. Cryptocurrency erases that problem and has really allowed cybercrime to uh, metastasize in scale. Silvers and his team have seized crypto wallets, they've sanctioned exchanges. Essentially, they're trying to add some friction to ransomware enterprises. And the key is to make them feel like they may have their funds seized, that their affiliates might turn on them and turn them into law enforcement for the kind of $5 million or $10 million reward that we have put out for those folks. And they will spend less time working on finding victims and more time trying to conceal and find covert ways to do what they're doing. As for the question, how does ransomware end? Silvers says it's never going to end completely. I think really the vision is not to have like a time certain where it ends. It is to manage the risk down to a level where we always want to be getting it smaller and smaller, but where it is more manageable for society to deal with it. And I think when you start to get cryptocurrency exchanges around the world that start to adopt the kind of know your customer controls that prohibit illicit finance, when you get up to a defensive uh, level of resilience, we will shrink this problem down to where maybe it still exists, but is more of an irritant as opposed to a scourge. That was DHS Undersecretary Rob Silvers. And this is Click Here. Here's what else you need to know about cyber and intelligence this week. U.S. Cyber Command and National Security Agency Chief General Paul Nakasone has been asked to remain in his post for another year. My colleague at The Record, Martin Matishak, and I broke that story last week. Nakasone has already served for four years, and he's now allowed to be extended one year at a time without any formal congressional confirmation. And while appointments are never done until they're done, The renewal is a vote of confidence in both the general and his efforts to expand the cyber mission to include election security and combating ransomware. The U.S. Treasury Department sanctioned a cryptocurrency mixing service for the first time last week, saying it was used to launder funds stolen by North Korean state-backed hackers. OFAC, the department's Office of Foreign Assets Control, said the Blender I.O. service was used to process more than $20 million in illicit proceeds from a March attack on the Ronin network. That incident, which cost the company more than $620 million at the time, was linked to North Korean hackers known as the Lazarus Group. And finally, the Conti ransomware gang is back in the news. The U.S. State Department is offering a $10 million reward for any information that leads to the identification or location of people connected to the group. Any leads that lead to the arrest or conviction of a Conti member will garner an additional $5 million reward. Today's episode was produced by Sean Powers and Will Jarvis, and it was edited by Lou Olkowski, with fact-checking from Darren Ancrum. Ben Levingston composed our theme and original music for the episode, and we had additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. Click Here is a production of The Record by Recorded Future. And finally, we want to hear from you. Please leave us a review and rating wherever you get your podcasts, and you can connect with us at clickhereshow.com. I'm Dina Temple-Raston. We'll be back on Tuesday. For those of you who stuck around to the end, a little moment with Kirill 
that we couldn't resist sharing. May I ask you one question that is not connected to our theme? You may ask me anything you like. Um, uh, I was arguing with my friend uh, recently, and uh, she's, she, uh, she said that um, if someone sneezes in USA, n- no, no one, uh, no one say I say bless you. So what do you use? Well, some people say God bless you. Some people use the German word Gesundheit. And the most people said Gesundheit. 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 <laughs> okay, thank you. Looking for more of the cybersecurity and intelligence coverage you get on Click Here? Then check out our sister publication, The Record, from Recorded Future News. You'll get breaking cyber news from reporters in New York, Washington, London, and Kiev, among others. And you'll see for yourself why it attracts hundreds of thousands of page views every month. Just go to the record.media.